0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, the podcast that exposes the latest innovations in AI and ML while simultaneously grappling with issues of diversity and inclusion. I am Danielle, founder of Decaio Data, and with me I have Dr. Sarah Callahan, who has some exciting news to share about an upcoming data science journal called Patterns. So we're going to delve into her background, how she got into data journalism and data science, and then we have exciting news for you about how you and the whole data science community can be involved with patterns following the release in April.
1: Let's start out with you telling me about your background in science and how it brought you to data science
2: okay, so uh this is going to be quite a long story, I will say in advance to give you a fair warning so um I started off uh my first degree was physics and music at the university um or Cardiff University in Wales. Um, And every time I say physics and music as a first degree, people invariably make the same comment, which is, oh, that's an interesting combination. Um, uh, But um, basically, I wanted to combine physics and do something interesting with it. And the music was a really good course to do it. So it was two thirds physics, one third music. Um, That was my undergrad degree, as I said. Um, and um, that is also when I did my first bit of data science, which was my uh, dissertation and third year project was teaching a very very simple neural network the difference between J.S. Bach and Stravinsky in terms of sheet music. So that that was quite good fun. I I enjoyed that particular project. I'm still doing music type stuff. I um I play harp, although I um, picked that up later on. Uh, I think I've been doing that for about seven years now, something like that. Um, And I've reached the point in time where I can play harp and sing at the same time, which I'm very proud of. Uh, So I take take my little harp with me to various open mic sessions and stuff like that and do cover versions.
0: That's incredible. So how has that informed your current research?
2: So as I said, physics and music was my first degree. And straight out of university, I had a brief stint of time explaining to kids in the local um, hands-on science centre Um, about science and then I got a job um, doing data analysis um, data checking basically as a temp job for the office of national statistics in the UK uh, which basically involved just checking the data that came in as a result of lots of um, uh, commercial surveys and um, things like that Um, but that was only a temp job and then I got my first proper job out of university and that was working for the radio communications research unit at a place called Uh, Rutherford Appleton Laboratory and um, basically I was brought on because the group that I was working with um, were running long-term scientific experiments in radio propagation um, which and I was brought on to kind of do the data analysis and data processing and cleaning coming from those experiments so um, the experiments were we had a there was a satellite up in space And uh, it was broadcasting a steady pitch or a steady frequency um, down to earth, but it was at the frequencies were above 10 gigahertz. Um, And unfortunately, at those sorts of frequencies, anything above 10 gigs, if you get. a rain or rain cloud or even not raining clouds or rainstorms in between your satellite and your receive station, your signal starts degrading because the size of the raindrops are of the same order as the wavelength of the radio waves that are coming in, which means the radio waves get all scattered and absorbed and and all that sort of fun stuff. Um, So we were working on this and taking long term measurements because it doesn't rain everywhere all the time, no matter what some people would have you believe. And we were looking at ways to compensate for the effects of rain fading and stuff like that, because um, and the reason we were doing this was because the radio spectrum at lower frequencies that aren't impacted by weather was getting is getting really, really congested. And of course, everybody wants to have enough mobile data to be able to watch Netflix on the go, so to speak. Um, So uh, to be able to open more of the radio spectrum, we needed to be able to compensate for annoying atmospheric effects like that. So um, anyway, I spent um, many years of my early career lovingly um, creating and managing and looking after a long term data set and uh, doing analysis and processing and, uh, and pre processing and um, all that sort of fun stuff. It was that that point in time of my career that I had uh, a fairly um, important thing happened to me in the, namely that i got scooped so um i shared my research data with another research group um and sat with the the people involved and explained what it was all about and how we'd processed it and what 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 had happened to it and all the rest of it um third group who shall remain nameless um then went and published a a journal article uh, using that data um, and I didn't get a co-author credit or even a named credit in the acknowledgments or anything like that. So um, yes, um, I was a bit annoyed by that. Even though this was back in the early two thousands, and that's how how things happened. Data, data citation, data publication wasn't a thing back then. Um, making your data open wasn't even a thing back then. Um, so data really, data management was really not uh, very common, and um, people just didn't do it an awful lot of the time.
0: Well I'm hoping now you can talk a little bit about your PhD keeping in mind the context of data management at the time you were studying.
2: Um, While I was working for RAL as part of the Radio Communications Research uh, Group Research Unit, RCRU, um, they've sponsored me to do my PhD, which I did in conjunction with the University of Portsmouth. And I, um, my PhD was, again, radio propagation, but it was all about rainfield modelling um, for radio communication systems, which meant that I was trying to come up with ways of synthetically generating rainfields. And a rainfield is, um, if you watch the the weather on TV, you see the satellite images of the clouds and how they swirl and and move in particular ways. Um, You also get rain radar, which basically produces these very nice um, multicoloured pictures of how the rain moves across the country um, as it's pushed by the wind and stuff like that, as as the fronts move. My PhD was all about simulating those radar images in order to um, be able to Um, kind of test out systems without having to go through all the effort of actually building the system and putting it out in the field and running it for however many years to find out what was whether it would work or not so I was trying to come up with synthetic synthetic data so um, that was that was actually that was that was fun um, and I learned an awful lot from that process
0: well speaking of process I want to hear looking back at how you feel like you've evolved as a data scientist into this point where you're at now at the intersection of media and data science.
2: So the first 10 years of my life were pretty much um, data creation. I was a researcher. I was creating data. Um, I had the joys of being told that I needed to put my data into standard formats rather than the uh, the pre-rolls um, or the pre than the personalised formats that we'd set up within our group, um, and uh, that was that was fun as well because it it took effort to make the data standardised and uh, make it usable for other people, but it was worth doing in the end, and I think that was quite that's a very important thing to to point out the second decade of my academic career, um, or career in general, um, and I do count it by decades because that's the way it seems to have worked out. Anyway, um, there, our funding situation changed and um, I had already been moving towards a more project management type of role for in, in radio communications and um, radio spectrum management. Um, and then I um, wound up moving from the RCRU into what was then the British Atmospheric Data Centre um, and is now the Centre for Environmental Data Analysis at, um, again, at, uh, at RAL, at Rutherford-Appleton Laboratory in the UK. Um, and basically, uh, CEDA brought me on as a scientific project manager to help them out with all the the many and varied projects they were doing uh, mainly in the fields of data curation but they were also doing things with data visualization building building software and infrastructures to support um the use uh, and management of of um scientific data and um i as i said i was project manager for them and i wound up on quite a wide variety of projects um i had given the fact that i'd been scooped earlier in my career i was very keen and interested in um, the projects that were about data citation and data publication Um mainly from a selfish perspective because I'd been scooped, but also to ensure that what had happened to me was less likely to happen to other people to give. So data citation and publication is all about giving credit, um, appropriate credit to the researchers who spent a lot, of, a lot of time and effort and energy making these data sets. Um, and they might not have got credit for them because when, when you're spending your entire academic career um, nurse a an instrument and looking after the resulting data streams that come out of it um you often don't have the time to uh do the analysis that you need to do to draw the conclusions that you need to get into a, a an academic journal paper and that's that's unfair as far as i'm concerned because you're you're a valid contributor if you don't have good data garbage in garbage out you you can't trust um, what the, the conclusions you draw from a data set are, if your data set isn't, isn't trustworthy, isn't valid, isn't well documented and look after.
0: Anyway, that's a hobby horse that I can rant on about for ages. And we are all here to hear you rant. So why don't you tell us a bit about how your whole background that you've just described got you into the journaling aspect of your career? So um I spent a lot of time, as I said, with BADC
2: doing project management stuff in data citation publication um, as part of that, I was working on a project which um, helped the Royal Metrological Society launch a data journal. Um, called the Geoscience Data Journal, and I was associate editor on that for several years. Um, And this data journal was basically publishing data sets. So you would create your data set and you'd put it in a trusted repository. And then you would um, write an article going, here is my data set. Here's the who, what, why, when, how it was created. Um, And here is the important information that you need to know to be able to use this data for whatever purpose you might want to, do to in the future and then you publish the paper with a permanent and unambiguous link to the data in question and then Bob, there you go Bob's your uncle you can now uh, take advantage of all the fun metrics like citation counts and stuff like that. I also spent four years of my um, career as editor-in-chief of the CODATA data science journal which is a, a, a very nice lovely little small press data science journal. Um, and that covers all aspects of data science, but although it's a bit more inclined towards the, the data management, data policy side of things.
0: Awesome. It's really great to hear how all of the background you just described has set you up perfectly to be the editor-in-chief of Cell Press's new data science journal, Patterns, which is going to launch in April I want to spend the rest of our time here on this DataFab episode talking about what the whole data science community can expect from this launch. Patterns is going to be having its first
2: issue live at the beginning of April this year. So I'm really looking forward to that and uh, I'm really, really looking forward to share what, what we've got in the pipeline for that so far. There's some really exciting stuff coming out.
1: You know, it's such a new industry and there's so many ideas that are circulating around but aren't really connecting with one another. You know, like I was just at our studio conference, as you know, and there are so many brilliant people talking about um, a variety of different data science applications in various industries But I don't, sometimes there's not a lot of cohesion because, uh, you know, these people don't know what their peers in other industries are doing. And it could be very similar, just, you know, in a totally different industry. So I think, I mean, Patterns is just such an exciting (laughs) new prospect for everybody in the industry to hopefully consolidate all of these stories. I've experienced exactly the same thing
2: in that I go to conferences and every time data comes up as a topic of conversation, people are always saying exactly the same things about it. Oh, my God, we've got so much data. We don't know how to deal with it or we don't know how to manage it. We don't know how to store it or very, very commonly. Oh, my God, the data quality is rubbish. Right. Um, So there's lots and lots of data out there and people are struggling with it. Um, to make it do what they want it to do and to achieve what they want to achieve with it. Um, but they all have the same problems and it doesn't matter where, whether what domain they're in, whether they're computer vision experts or um, materials researchers or um, environmental scientists or whatever, the, the same problems are happening. And each of those different domains, all those people in those different domains, are coming up with solutions to these problems. Um, they're coming up with ever so slightly different solutions. So there's an awful lot of reinventing the wheel going on and the resulting solutions um, aren't actually um, comp- cross compatible. They're not standardised. They're they they're not they're very nearly but not quite the same thing, um, which just means that they can't interconnect and they can't work together. So with patterns, I want to bring together all the people who work with data um, to share data science solutions across multiple domains so that they can learn from each other. So um, say for an example, um, an astronomer might build a big data infrastructure to store astronomy data. Right? What lessons um, and what uh, takeaways can be learned from the process of building that infrastructure that can be used by somebody else who has to deal with large quantities of image related data? Because there's plenty of those sorts of people around as well. Um, So to that aim, I've got kind of three groups that I like to think of when I think about the potential um, audience for patterns, and they are in no particular order. First of all, we've got the computer scientists and data science type people, the people who are developing the really cool, innovative new algorithms and, and tools to, um, to to analyze and process and do really interesting stuff with data. Um and they're the sort of people who are all about the algorithm, all about the the software they they want to be testing it out on data sets, but they don't necessarily know the data sets um, that are out there or i can oftentimes they can't find the sort of data that they actually actually need. Then we have the researchers in the data intensive domains who don't consider themselves to be data scientists because they consider themselves to be high energy physicists or climate modelers or whatever. Um, But they are dealing with vast quantities of data and they are trying to do things with this data to get the answers to scientific research questions out of it. Um, And they could potentially... Um, be really helped out by some of these new algorithms that the computer scientists are are generating, but they they don't know about them. They don't know what these cutting edge um, and even if they did know what was cutting edge, they might not necessarily feel comfortable enough with uh, their own understanding of, of these methods to be able to apply them properly. Right. So bringing those two groups together is already potentially bringing a load of benefits to the, the data science community and the wider community as a whole then the third group we've got are um the people who are working on the um the the, again, the infrastructure, so I call them the data stewards, the data engineers, the uh, digital archivists. Uh, these are the people who are building the infrastructure, building the tools and services to support the data intensive researchers and to support the computer scientists. Um, and to um, make it easy for people to do the right things with data. And in this group as well, I include people who are working on building data policy and who are looking at the um the social and political and ethical aspects of data science too because there's been an awful lot of stuff recently um, where there have been ethical concerns raised about data science um, and machine learning algorithms and expert systems algorithms and stuff like that because we have discovered that uh, uh, computers um, will be very definite about giving you an answer but it might not be the answer that you you were originally looking for.
0: I definitely understand what you're saying about that. And I think that's why communication through the forms of whatever media we're creating are becoming increasingly important. So I'm really excited for my audience to be able to take part in patterns. What people can expect from patterns is a
2: wide variety of article types um, spanning all research disciplines, all all domains, everybody who uses data is welcome as far as uh, as patterns is concerned and will hopefully find something within the, the contents of each issue uh, that is of interest to them, either on a personal level um, or on a, on a professional one.
0: Are we looking solely for new articles or if somebody already has a publication that they're really proud of on LinkedIn, would they be able to submit that to patterns as well? well we can accept um preprints so stuff that's in
2: archive and the like um if something has been written as say for example a blog post and then that could potentially be reworked as as an opinion piece or whatever Uh, we can't accept stuff that's already been published in another academic journal that's the main point um and ideally we'd want to publish stuff that is new but it's um if something is exciting and innovative um and useful for a wider range of communities then I'd say to your listeners um, if you have something that you think might be of interest fire it over to me and let let me have a quick look and I'll give a quick bit of feedback as to to whether or not it would work for us or not.
1: That makes sense because even you know transcripts from conferences could be potentially interesting you know like a speaker's written up transcript I feel like that could be a cool thing to feature because it hasn't been published even though it's been spoken aloud but you know it could also double as a journal as well. We have actually got um, a couple of opinion pieces
2: in the pipeline which are exactly that they are the the kind of text to a keynote talk at a conference. We're we're an academic journal so primarily we publish research articles. And research articles are exactly what you think of when you think of a research article and standard journal article. Um, looking at a scientific problem, aims, methods, results, conclusions, that sort of thing. We have two flavors of those, which is basically down to word count. So we've got short versions and long versions. So, um, And yeah, the short version is two to four K words and the long version is four to four to eight. So, so there we go. Um then we have. Um, opinion pieces, which are literally that this is somebody um, writing a piece along the lines of this is what I think the situation is and um, and, and giving their opinion. Um, opinion pieces have to be of interest to the community. They're not they're not an excuse to get all, uh, all ranty or, or um, poetical, although um, I do say on the uh, the the website that if you can actually write an opinion piece in a poetical form, then I would be delighted to see it and will judge it on its own merits. So if you can write its own opinion piece in, form, in the form of a sestina a or a sonnet or something like that, then yes, please send it on over because that that amuses me. Um, then as well, we have reviews, which are, um, again, a fairly standard academic journal type of thing where we have somebody who goes through all the the published literature on a particular topic and, and reviews it and says this is what's out there and this is what what the what the situation is and that's very helpful for for people in a in a given topic to um, learn what's been going on in a quick and easy to digest sort of way. Um, we also have perspectives which are surprisingly popular at the moment. Perspectives are kind of a halfway house between an opinion and a review or not. Uh, yes, an opinion and a review um, a perspective is reasonably long, two to four K words and has a good number of references uh, associated with it. But basically a perspective is um, here is the situation as it stands at the moment. Reference, reference, reference. And this is what we the authors think needs to change about this situation so it's a way for authors to kind of put out a call for action um and say okay we need to do something about this this is what i think we need to do but we need to get on with it and do it um and perspectives are also good from the point of view of doing reports of significant um conferences and things like that as well although uh, we we haven't had any any conference reports in in yet then what else have we got um we have Uh, A fairly new article type, but one that's gaining traction. So we have a descriptor article type, which is exactly that. It's a descriptor article describes a data science thing, whether that data science thing is a data set, a piece of software, um, an e-infrastructure, or even an actual physical hardware infrastructure. So if you built a supercomputer and you want to be able to cite your supercomputer, you can write a descriptor article about it and publish that descriptor article and use that as your kind of um, thing that gets cited for when people are using your supercomputer. So basically just any a data science thing, it has to um, be permanently and unambiguously defined. So uh, the data set has to be clear what, the, what is in the data set and what isn't. And it has to be permanently linked and stored and looked after and archived and managed properly. But um, then you've got the descriptor articles about that. Um, then the other article type we have, um, which again is a bit newer um, and I'd be very delighted to hear from any of your listeners who would be interested in writing one of these for me, it's called a tutorial and it's kind of like a review article but for software. So it's a um, an article which says which is of useful for the, for the community for a researcher who wants to get into say machine learning um, but don't entirely know where to start a um, um a tutorial article would be uh here is a a, a list on and uh, discussion of all the commonly available pieces of software out there that um enable you to do machine learning, for example. And here are their pros and cons, and here's how, how you can find them and how you can use them. Then we also have previews, which are short pieces, just um, giving a commentary about a piece of, um, or an article that's been published in in either our journal, or in either patterns or in a related journal, or, um, or a, a journal that we're connected to somehow. Um, and then we also have what are, are called um, people of data articles and that's again harking back to this notion that data science isn't just about numbers it's about the people behind the numbers as well and the people who are being affected by the decisions that are being made by these numbers as a result of these numbers so the people of data um pieces are are short pieces and they are uh, extended profiles of the people who do the research or um, historical figures from the past who have um, provided a, a big impact into data science as a, as a whole over the, over the years.
0: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for telling us about your background and how it led you to become the editor-in-chief of Patterns and for choosing DataFem as one of the main platforms to talk about this upcoming release that we're all very excited for in April. For my Data Fem listeners, you can make sure to sign up for the first issue at the parent company site, cell.com slash patterns slash home. And this site will give you a lot more information about what to expect from patterns, and you'll be able to be... Within the first people to get initiated into this new community. And we're all very excited to hear the updates following the release. Sarah and I are going to do another episode a few months in to talk about the evolution of patterns so far and how the data science community can get even more involved. So in the meantime, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out on Twitter. Um, I am at, as you know, at Decaio Data. And Sarah is on Twitter as well. Her handle is at s o r c h a underscore N I, and you can also look up patterns on Twitter. That's how I found them initially. That's at patterns underscore CP. So there's a lot of channels that you can explore until April, get excited, start thinking about submissions and content that you might already have or want to create. And this is going to be a real fun wild ride for the data science community. That will spark a lot of discussions about how the industry is moving forward into the future.